Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick, practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, we spoke with Orla Conifton on the topic of design assurance. So Orla started out as a mechanical engineer. She holds a PMP certification from PMI and has a master's degree in project management. She has 18 years experience primarily working in the medical device sector and has worked at the senior management level for both multinational and startup organizations. She's also run her own company, Aztec Medical, for the last eight years. On top of all this, she's passionate about design assurance. This is a phrase I haven't heard too much in my neck of the woods. So if you're like me, don't worry. If you're familiar with the concept of design controls, then you'll know exactly what we're talking about. A few of the points we get to are things like, what is design assurance? Who's qualified to perform design assurance? What are some key principles and aspects of this position? And how do you gain that experience to do it competently? We talk about a lot of other things. I'm hoping in the future that maybe we can do an Ask Me Anything, an AMA session with Orla in the community. So if this is something you're interested in, then definitely shoot me an email and let me know. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Orla Conifton on design assurance. Hey, everyone. Good to be back with you today. Today with me is Orla Connachton. Good to be with you, Orla. I focused on the Orla and I thought I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so good to see you. Um, I hope things have been going well. How have you been? Yeah, great. Everything's going well over here. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. And thank you for having me on. Well, I'm excited to to have our, our conversation, especially about, you know, we, we were talking before, before we started recording, but design assurance and uh, this topic, this seems like a, an undervalued topic in the in the broader industry me so my background was as a mechanical engineer when i went into product development i was maybe not ready for the level of detail required when it came to design assurance but maybe i'm getting ahead of myself i wonder if you could maybe introduce some of this topic like maybe tell us a little bit about what design assurance even is sure well definitely i think that you know your experience is very common Etienne. and what often happens i think is in companies is that they particularly maybe in small you know, to medium companies where they're maybe coming up with a new innovative product and all the focus is on the product. So can we get a concept that works? Is there a need for it? You know, will we have a market? And really focusing a lot, as you said, from an engineering perspective on the product itself, the device and its technology. And what happens is a lot of people get a working prototype and then they get very excited. They think, right, we'll, you know, we'll be in the market in six months, you know, and they think, well, I have this working now. I'm just going to, you know, maybe do a bit of testing on it. Maybe I need to do some kind of an animal study or something. But really, they expect a really short time to market because they believe they have their product functional and working. And really what the regulations globally require, I mean, we, we primarily tend to focus on the US and Europe, you know, which are the 
which is wise because really everybody else has has a version of those or can e- or can even work from those approvals. But both of those regulatory processes require that the product has been developed in a very specific way, you know, through a design control process, and that there is evidence of that control design control process being worked through the whole product development process. So. You know, having a working functioning prototype is great. And of course, it's the, you know, it's required and it's a great starting point. But really, that is what it is. It's a starting point because what has tended to happen is to that point, people have maybe just gotten samples in from vendors. You know, um, there's no traceability maybe on the manufacturing of those samples or they don't know if they've been manufactured in a controlled environment, what kind of conditions they've been exposed to. They've generally put them together themselves you know, on the desk, in the lab, there's no work instructions, there's no training evidence of, you know, the engineer doing this, maybe the equipment's not calibrated, because, you know, it's still in that early phase. But, you know, for product designers, this is what they are about. And most of them don't even know, or, or have some kind of, you know, side knowledge, if you like, that there is something out there you know, that's quality system, maybe that's there's a regulatory, you know, pathway I need to follow to get this product on the market. But what often is missing is the understanding of that pathway and particularly the design controls pathway that documents the product development process so that when you go and submit your data and you want a regulator to approve your device, that they have the comfort that if it was developed, if your device was developed and tested and assessed, risk assessed, for example, through this control design development process, that gives them the confidence to trust the data that they are reviewing. So they fundamentally can trust the data. They fundamentally, you know, can, you know, can trust the process that the product has been developed through. Therefore, their focus now is, particularly in the US, is really just on reviewing the data pack and can they accept it? You know, does it say what it's supposed to say? Does the device meet its intended use? Is it going to perform? Is it going to be effective? Um, so if you can demonstrate that you have brought that data to them through this controlled process, um, you know, you're just in a much stronger position. Yeah, that makes sense. I like how you put that. If you've gone through this appropriate process, they can trust the data. One of the things that I would be maybe curious about is as a regulatory professional, when you work with these, you know, different design engineers Mm -hmm. and so forth, when do you get involved and when do you recommend people start working on the design assurance process? Yeah. So, you know, I think once the device and once the the engineers, if you like, have brought it to like a good working concept, at that point, you've got to start implementing your design controls. Because, you know, what I say to people is at that point, if you continue to, you know, try and do things, I'm going to call it in an uncontrolled way, but I mean like maybe acquiring, you know, components to to assemble your device that are not, you don't have traceability on, or like I mentioned, your, your you know, your machines are not calibrated or whatever those types of things are. Really at that point, what you're doing is you're, you know, throwing good money away because you think you're gathering data, but it's not going to be able to be submitted to the regulatory authority. So once you have a good working prototype and you think, I'm pretty confident this is close to my final design, it does not need to be the final design, but you have a good idea of, you know, where you're going. At that point, I really think the design controls need to start coming in because, 
you have a very defined process. It's required by both regulations, you know, so 21 CFR 20 uh, part 30 is design controls. And then in the ISO 13485, you know, uh, 2016, it's section 7.3 defines that you have got to develop your product through a product development process. So once you, once you have a good technical solution, at that point, you should implement your design controls and start creating your documents and start releasing your you know, procedures through this control process, because now everything you do has value and adds value. And you now can start submitting all of this data. So any lab book studies you're doing, you know, just trying to record um, anything, you know, any metrics, tensile strength. I mean, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, deployment forces. Once you are gathering that data through a controlled process, it's valuable and you can use it and you can use it to support your case when you're seeking approval from, from a regulatory authority. So I really think at that point, like what we call the concept phase almost, you know, of a design control process is like I have a good working model. I, you know, it's something that I'm, I believe is close enough to start really putting effort into. And that's the point really where I believe design assurance really should engage. Yeah. And I'd almost like to get your advice on this. So when I think about that concept phase, you have kind of a, you know, pretty much what direction you're going in, what your product's going to look yeah. like. And that's typically what I would say too. That's, you know, obviously that's when you need to at least start having some things hammered out. But the question I guess I have in my mind is those engineers, they probably have some of that design controls already in their head. I mean, if you think about like user needs and design inputs, they've probably already, I mean, really that's floating around in their head or else they wouldn't have gotten to this point uh, anyway, you know, with with a concept phase. So I don't know if I'd turn this into a question necessarily, but what's one of the better ways to pull the, that information out of people's heads and put it on paper that you've seen? Do you have any advice or thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So you're quite right. I mean, people haven't come up with a product from nothing. They know they, they've identified, hopefully, they've identified a need. Yeah. You know, they have done, as you said, even that basic market research almost, even if it's not formal, you know. So, you know, as you said, the design control process has, you know, documents or terms such as, you know, product specification, user needs documents, and these types of early stage documents that allow you to document exactly, well, what are we going to consider and what you know, what are the types of things that we want to um, deliver to the patient, to the clinician, um, to, you know, whoever your user or, or patient population are? And how are we going to phrase those needs such that we can pr provide evidence that demonstrates to the regulator, for example, that we meet those needs? So, you know, if you take something like even a catheter, that a lot of people are, I suppose, quite familiar with, you know, it has certain requirements. So, for example, there are certain tensile strength uh, that the bonds have got to um, withstand. So that, for example, you know, when it endures the pressures of deploying it into the body and, and withdrawing it, that it doesn't fall apart, that it's going to be able to withstand those types of pressures. You know, there's also user needs around, depending on your device, if it's a mobile device, you're going to need it, you know, lightweight, um, you know, perhaps other types of devices will require things not to leak, for example. So, you know, there's there's user requirements and specifications like this. And sometimes, as we can talk about in a little, you know, a little while, maybe there's specific design standards that dictate, you know, for a particular type of device, what those 
requirements need to be, what those specifications are. But others then, when you're coming up with a device that's maybe a little more novel or it's going to be used in a different way, you've got to determine those user needs and specifications for yourself and, you know, define them. Um, because every user need, you've got to demonstrate that you have evidence to show that you can meet it. Yeah. And maybe we can just go straight into that. You mentioned some of those other standards. Are those, you know, sometimes when I look at the standards, as far as what all is out there, it's just, it's just a sea of standards to a certain degree. Yeah. I'm sure there are some that you say, hey, these are ones you need to look at every time. I'd love to get any thoughts or advice you have for companies when it comes to the standards and looking at those. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm a big Disney fan, you know. <laughs> I grew up <laughs> watching all the Disney movies and my kids, I, I educated them all very well. And, you know, sometimes I think about design assurance in the context almost of The Lion King. And I know this probably sounds a bit crazy to some. Oh, no, but, this is great. <laughs> but, I'm very familiar. I have a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know, there's a scene in The Lion King and it's like Mufasa, who's obviously the dad. And, you know, he's got his, his son Simba there and he's showing him, you know, everywhere the light touches is, you know, our kingdom, basically, you know. Um, and, you know, this is the scene from The Lion King. And sometimes I think, you know, like that is design assurance. It's almost like, as you say, what are the specific standards? And it's like design assurance, you know, personnel have got to be able to touch them all, you know. So it's from understanding things like the basic quality system, you know, standards and regulations. So, you know, how does the quality system work? What does the design control? control process require you know what's that structured design control process that we have to go through then you get into things like if we look at um the product specific standards but well let's take more the um i guess the hard what we call the horizontal standards so it would be things like risk management you know so um iso 14971 um is the risk management standard for medical devices and no matter what type of medical device you've got You've got to be familiar with that standard so that you can assess the risks, understand, you know, where the risks are to the users, the patients, et cetera, how to mitigate those risks and, you know, basically generate a device that will be safe for the populations. Um, another kind of horizontal standard, if you like, like that is if you need to do clinical investigations. So you'll have ISO 14155. Um, and again, that's like, how do you do clinical investigations no matter what your device is? So there's some horizontal standards like that. And again, design assurance professionals need to understand these, know how to navigate them and, you know, drive the creation of the documents quite often to, um, you know, to, to comply with them. I'm going to ask a dumb question if I could. So what do you mean by the horizontal? I'm I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> sure. Sorry. So horizontal is like standards that apply no matter what your device type is. So they're okay. general standards. So like I say, the quality system, the risk management, the you know clinical investigations, if you like. And then what we call kind of vertical standards are the very device specific. So, you know, if I'm developing a coronary catheter, I now have, you know, oh, maybe like ISO 25539, I think is one of the is one of the device specific standards for maybe a coronary catheter. You know, if you have, you know, a device that has conical fittings on your device, for example, one of the standards that will be applicable to you is the ISO 20594. So th these are very specific to your device. 
and they're what kind of what are generally called the vertical standards. So horizontal kind of go across everything and then vertical is like, well, I'm in this silo. I'm either in the, you know, coronary space or I'm in the GI space or I'm in the, you know, whatever. And it's the, it's the standards that are very specific to those. So, yeah. you know, yeah, that's one of the things, you know, like by compatibility, say standard, you know, would be another kind of horizontal or the sterilization standard. So what happens with design assurance is, you know, if you take all of the elements of the technical file, you know, whether it's for a US submission, European submission, really they all have very common threads. Like there's biocompatibility, you know, sterilization of the sterile device, there's the design verification and validation, which touch on these uh, specific standards. Um, you know, there is uh, labeling, you know, there's all of these various risk management, various sections. And design assurance has to have a knowledge of them all, you know, and know how they all entwine and to ensure that the you know that the story that you need to tell to the regulator at the end to get your device on the market that the story links all of these elements together um, and that it's a consistent story so for example we do some risk analysis um, and we identify maybe what our risks are and then we determine what's our design verification testing out of that, what's our design validation testing out of that. So what sample size am I going to use? Well, you know, you're going to be looking to your design assurance professional to help guide you with that. You know, what tests do I need to do? You're going to look to your design assurance professional to say, well, you know, there's specific device standards for this type of device. Therefore, we must do those tests. But also, have we other user requirements or user needs or, or, or specifications that we we want to, you know, to make a claim about our device maybe because we want to be a differentiator in the market. You know, we want people to buy ours over theirs. So maybe we have other specifications there and, you know, you're going to be looked to your design insurance professional. How do I test those or, or what really, like how much testing, how much data do I need? You know, the, your, your technical engineers are going to develop your test methods. So it's not it's not that technical element of it. But it's the it's the link to the risk. And it's the, you know, once we do our testing and discover that everything is fine or not so fine, how do we communicate these residual risks in our labeling? And it's tying all of these elements together, telling a consistent story. And, you know, they need to have that kind of technical know-how, you know, but at the same time, they're they're still keeping an eye on the big picture. So it and, and I'm going to kind of describe what I've heard and you tell me where I'm missing the mark maybe. So sure. it's almost as if they are something of uh they can speak the engineering language, but they also can somewhat speak the language of the regulator. And they're kind of a, uh, they're kind of the begin with the end in mind guy. They know what is going to have to fit or hand over to the regulator, but they also understand from a technical side to a certain point to kind of mesh those together. I don't know if I'm, one thing I might ask about that with the design assurance professional, it's a very specific subset of skills you sure. know, that they would need, whether it's making sure that, you know, well, like you said, um, like biocompatibility, having an, a general understanding of 10993 mm -hmm. or 11607 for sterilization and all these different things. Yeah. How does a person get to the point where they, I mean, obviously it's always going to be learning, but when they're a design professional, what, what leads them up to that point? Or what, what would you say is a, a good pathway of learning to get to that point? Do you, have, do you have any recommendations there? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, you know, yeah, it's a good point because, you know, you can't go to college to be desi a design assurance professional. You know, it doesn't, it's not there. So, 
you know, quite yeah. often. And I mean, you know, if you look, even do a search for, you know, even job specs for design assurance people, you know, and there's a, always a quite a big similarity. So they all want a technical background, um, you know, and generally quite a high level, you know, because you do need to understand, like there's different products coming at you all the time, you know, um, and you need to be able to kind of, as you say, you don't be, you're not a technical expert on any of them, but you need to have an understanding, an understanding of the nuances, if you like, with the devices. So they generally always want a technical background. Um, and then, you know, with kind of roughly five, eight, ten years experience of working in the area so that, you know, generally what will happen is people will have either come through, as you said, something like an engineering or science qualification and maybe a product development type environment or and we'll also have worked maybe in a regulated environment, ideally medical devices, because they understand the whole quality system elements and stuff like that, but some kind of a regulated environment. So that's quite often the kind of um, the technical, you know, requirements, if you like, on a job spec. But, you know, what I really think makes a really good design assurance um, specialist, if you like, is the mindset element of of, of the job, yes. if you like. And, you know, yeah, let's get into that. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important. I think, you know, you do need to understand the technical aspects, like we said. So, you know, there's a design control process. You need to work in a quality system regulated environment. You need to have a good technical understanding. But more than that is you, you know, you have to be creative. You know, you have to keep an open mind. You know, you have to understand what the regulation is looking for. You know, and it's not just reading the black and white words. It's like trying to, you know, understand the nuance and behind it, understand the context in which the device that you're, you know, engaged in on this project, um, you know, so what's what are the important facets of that device that can meet this regulatory requirement, if you like. So it's like that interpretation element of it, you know, with respect to the device that you're looking at. And it's, you know, constantly kind of going, okay, well, we have this data how does how can I present that to meet the regulatory requirements? So how can I present it to show that this device is safe and will perform and, and be effective and that? So, you know, you're going to the, the team are going to come up against failures. For example, you encounter a testing failure. It's like, okay, what does it mean? How can we solve it? How can we solve it in a way that we can still present it, you know, as a learning or as a positive, if you like, within our whole uh, this, this story that we have to tell to the regulator? Um you know, or do we need to just take a step back and go down, back maybe and do design freeze again, you know, so and then maybe move forward again such that we have a clean set of data to submit to the regulator. So it's it's keeping all of the balls in the air and constantly knowing the big keeping an eye on the end game the whole time, you know. So um, how am I going to tell the story? You know, how am I going to tell the story that, you know, the device is safe? It will perform, like I say, it will be effective. Um and that we've we've followed it through the appropriate design control channels, um, you know, thinking of different ways to do that depending on what the device is, and just being very open, I think, you know, um, to new ideas. And you know, I think quite often creativity is not a maybe a, a trait that's kind of recognised with kind of quality type professionals <laughs> sometimes, you know. But really, you know, it's very valuable in these situations because it's like, you know, there's no two projects are going to be the same. You're going to encounter different issues. And it's about it's about understanding all of the balls that need to be kept in the air, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. So while you were talking, it made me kind of think back to some of my past. If So 
I try to think in zooming out or nitty-gritty detail. As a manufacturer working with product development and quality, sometimes you'd have a print for a single component, and they would inspect what we called the CTQs at the time, the critical to quality aspects. Yeah. You know, that would be inspected every time. I bring that up because the product development engineer and the quality engineer, they were the ones really who determined what those CTQs were for the most part. Mm-hmm. Maybe the manufacturing had some input based on what could be inspected and so forth. But you'd have those CTQs for that component. If you look at a design assurance Keeping that concept in mind, they're almost looking at the entire component, the entire assembly, and determining what is critical to making this a working, safe, and effective part. And they're looking at every different aspect, whether it's biocompatibility, like you said, labeling, the risk, and the sides, you know, the the ways this could fail. They're almost like helping to determine the CTQs of the entire assembly yeah. to, to, to a certain degree. Would you yeah. agree? Or oh, would you totally. Thoughts there? I, I do often say to people, you know, because sometimes you do come up against people who don't know what design assurance is and they think, you know, oh, I have my, you know, product development engineers and maybe they have manufacturing engineers and people can often understand what a quality engineer is with respect to manufacturing. So as you say, you know, you are on the manufacturing line or the production line and you know, there's a quality engineer there and people can understand that their job is about creating the quality of the output. So, you know, or ensuring, you know, the quality of the output. So sometimes there's inspection in there. Sometimes it's, you know, dealing with kappas and non-conformances and all those fun things that, you know, they encounter. And, you know, but, <laughs> oh, it, but, people, can un- yeah, yeah. but people can understand <laughs> what that role is, I think, you know. And what I try and say to people is, well, you know, design assurance is that role for the product development process? You know, so you have a product development, you know, team or engineer who's, they're developing that process and they need to be supported in that process by the design assurance engineer. The same way, you know, a manufacturing engineer who's down trying to determine a process, you know, for manufacturing these components or whatever like that needs to be supported by a quality engineer who's working with them in tandem as part of the same team to deliver, you know, the device. So, I fully, you know, think you have the analogy, you know, perfect there because it's it's one I often use to explain to people to kind of say, you know, the design assurance person is your quality engineer of of the R&D process. Yeah. I'd never heard anyone verbalize that, but I think that's you you said it great. That's that's a really good point. Um I love that. So, sure. you know, we you mentioned something about what when we were talking about the process leading up to the education of a, of an engineer, typically it's on the job. Mm. You have a certain amount of technical, you get regulatory and you become this, you actually, it, it almost sounds like with the balls in the air, they're going to need some project management skills too yeah. and creativity. So it's a, it's a special person for sure. Yeah. It uh, is. If you're really good at it, but I almost, I, so I want to ask your, your thought then, and maybe this is purely theoretical. What, what I mean, we don't have you. You mentioned we don't really have a, a, a an academic pathway mm-hmm. right now to a degree in design design insurance engineering. But maybe I wonder if it, it could be possible to have one. You know, I mean, sometimes we have professors listening to this. Um, I wonder if that's something that uh, you know could be possible. Do you think it's even teachable, or does it have to be on the job? What are your thoughts? No, it's definitely teachable, and I mean, it's done quite often as you know a module of a regulatory type qualification. Um, So quite often they'll do a module in design control so that they know it exists, you know. um, So, you know, we have, we're very lucky here, actually. I'm based in Galway um, in the west of Ireland, and we have a BioInnovate program uh, running here with the local universities that, you know, started in Stanford and and basically some of the um, 
professors here went over and have taken the um, the, the concept here, and it's it's hugely successful. So there's a huge amount of small to medium enterprise enterprises here based in the west of Ireland um, that you know are looking at where there is clinical needs and trying to generate solutions for them. And they go through a great kind of two-year academic um, uh, program, if you like, you know, combined with getting clinical experience and, and various opportunity experiences like that. But they are taught, you know, a design control module um, and, you know, other kind of masters in regulatory affairs that are being taught again locally and, you know, here in other institutions, if you like, also have a design control uh, module. So people do, you know, they do come out with the understanding that there's a thing over there called that. Um, so you can you can educate to a point on what the processes are. But I, but I really think, you know, as you say, a good design assurance professional has the confidence behind them also of experience because, you know, the processes are, are top level defined. In other words, you must have a regulated process. There must be these kind of top level elements to it. But really, you have a lot of flexibility within the process also. So, you know, how can you be more efficient? You know, understanding the device that you have, if it's a lower risk device versus a higher risk device, understanding the level at which, for example, something like risk management needs to be done. So, you know, so you could go to, you know, hundreds and thousands of lines and they do. And I've seen them and, you know, sometimes for a class three implantable, really complex device, you, you have got to get to that level of determining the risks. But, you know, some people make the mistake of going there and then finding it so hard to come back from it. And it may be a much simpler device that really you don't need to analyze it at the same level at all. So that's the kind of experience that a good design assurance can bring, um, can say, look, at for this type of device, we're going far enough here. You know, for the next type of device, we need to go further, you know, and and also understanding the benefits of taking, say, something like risk management to a certain extent, to, to a certain level, because then you can start using the risks that you identify, for example, using them, you know, to in your post-market environment, if you like. So, so a, a complaint comes in, you receive a complaint for something. And one of the questions is, you know, did you consider this? Did you realize as manufacturer that this could happen to your device? And, you know, for in Europe at the moment with the vigilance requirements, it's like if you didn't realize that this is something that could happen and by didn't realize, I mean, didn't document because, you know, if it's not yeah. documented, it didn't happen, as we all know. So if you have it documented, for example, in your risk analysis, then maybe it's not a reportable complaint to the regulators, you know, so an MDR reportable tax event. But if you don't have it documented, in other words, you know, they, an auditor could come in and say, no, you never realize that could happen because I can't find it in your risk management file. Then maybe you end up reporting these types of events to regulators where there may be no need, highlighting risks that are really not risks with your device. It's just that you hadn't documented your risk management at the right level. Regulators are getting a bit concerned about you. You know, why aren't we seeing complaints with that company, not with the other company who have a similar device, for example? So, you know, it's understanding all of those nuances. That's what a really, you know, strong design assurance professional can just bring that level of nuance, you know, understanding and just professionalism to, you know, a product development process. 
I couldn't agree more. And this is probably going to step on someone's toes at some point. But when we were hiring new engineers, you know, that was a consideration just as an engineer for design, you know, just because if you hire a new grad, they they have such a solid foundation, especially depending on where they went to, to school mm-hmm. and so forth. But at the same time, you have the thought, I'm going to have to train this person, you know, yeah. to, to be a good engineer. Because you're right, yeah. you, without that... That's something to build on, you know, the, the real world experience. It's hard to, you, you just can't beat it. So yeah, yeah. that's a good point. I want to, you, you mentioned the mindset. Do you have any specific tidbits of wisdom or thoughts, stories, anything about that, applying that mindset or developing that mindset of a design insurance professional? Well, I guess there's a lot of kind of examples and things that we could come up with, but there's one particular story that I like and, you know, like some listeners will be familiar with this story because it's used in, you know, other concepts also, contexts, I should say also. But I like to, I like to think of it for design assurance. So if you have a minute, I'll share, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Let's hear it. So, um, you know, there was a Captain Charles Plum, um, who was a graduate from the U.S. Naval um, Academy. And his plane was shot down after about 74, 75 successful combat missions over North Vietnam. So, he was parachuted to safety, but he was captured and he spent over six years, um, you know, in in jail while he was being captured, if you like. So afterwards, he came home and his, his uh, himself and his wife were, were out to dinner and they were in a restaurant. And a man rose from a nearby table, came over to him and said, you're plum. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk and you were shot down. And Charlie was quite surprised and he thought, how, how do you know this? <laughs> You know, so the man replied, well, I packed your parachute and the, Charlie Plum looked up in surprise and, and, you know, he gave the man a thumbs up and said, well, I guess it worked. Um, but that <laughs> night um, he lay awake uh, thinking about this man because he thought about the hours that, you know, he was a sailor, actually, this individual. And he thought about the many hours that he had spent bending over a long wooden table in the bottom of the ship carefully folding all the silks and, you know, and weaving the shrouds to, to basically make the parachute, you know, uh, for somebody that he didn't know and would never, would never meet <laughs> probably. Um, so I often think, you know, so this, this kind of story is told is often to kind of say, think about who packs the parachute, if you like, you know, so, um, or the importance of packing that parachute. So, you know, in the, in this context, if you like, I sometimes think that, you know, design assurance packs the parachute for the product development process. So, you know, it's kind of like that understated thing that, you know, people don't always realize almost is happening, you know, that they, you know, are quietly kind of just getting the story together, you know, moving all the pieces of the jigsaw around to kind of create this, you know, this cohesive story, if you like, that we can tell to the regulators to get the device approved, if you like. But it's just it's packing the parachute for that product development process. You know, so I think people end up seeing the product, you know, and, you know, there's rightly great, you know, admiration for the technical minds that, you know, came up with it and developed it and all that. But, you know, what? the design assurance professional is there in the background and without them, you know, you're not going to get that product to market as quickly, as efficiently, because they can't tell the story, you know. And even, like I say, even afterwards, when your when your product is in the marketplace, they can also be providing you that you know that benefits because, you know, when they're doing a good job, they're also protecting you 
for the post market or, or you know, for what's coming down the road in, in the commercialization phase. So, you know, it's just a little story. I think it's just, it depends how you think about it, but, you know, that's the way I think about it. I think that's a powerful story. I think that is so good. People are probably going to be yelling at their <laughs> podcast player, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, that's saying, how do you not know if, if it's a common story? But I, I had not heard of that. That is so good. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Yeah, the design assurance person is the one who packs the parachute. I'll have to remember that. That's great. Yep. <laughs> I feel like that's almost like a mic drop moment. Did you have any other recommendations or advice for companies as they're building through this? Any you other know, thoughts? I guess what I really wanted, I suppose, out of today, you know, when we when we selected the topic of design assurance, was just for people to understand that it is a process in its own right. You know, it is a skill set in its own right. And that it's very valuable, you know, uh, to an organization, um, you know, to try and get a product out to the market. But also, you know, they, they have the big picture in mind. They have, you know, the pre the pre uh, commercialization, the post commercialization. And then also, you know, the patient groups, you know, the patient, the clinician, all of their users in mind, if you like. So, um, you know, I think they can future proof, if you like, as well as, um, you know, just look after the, the, the process, if you like. Um, and, uh, you know, another colleague said to me um, recently about kind of design assurance. And she said, you know, it's like insurance. She said, you don't even realize you need it or you don't even think about it until something comes up, you know. And, you know, maybe I'll give you a few little facts and figures if you don't mind it, Jen, and I won't, you know, Please. spend too much on it. But, you know, yeah. in Europe, people will be aware we have this small little thing called the medical device regulation that is causing havoc at the moment. But, um, you know, <laughs> there is, um, you know, there's some data starting to come out now, obviously, because, you know, certain companies are, you know, there's tech files going through and being submitted. And, you know, we're starting to get some data on how long it's taking to get products through the review cycle and the number of questions and things like that. And, you know, one survey that was performed here, um, uh, you know, with some um, companies across different notified bodies, but, you know, and different class of devices is that on average, there is like 170 questions coming back for each technical file that's been submitted. And some are getting three and 400. And these are files that were already products that were on the market under the MDD. You know, wow. yeah. And most of the time, there's not one of those has required new testing. So this is all documentation, clarification, you know, making your documents stronger to align to the requirements of the MDR. And I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here is like, that's what the design assurance professional can, can you know, can really build into a, to a product development process. But um, all of those questions that are coming back, approximately 65 to 75, 65 to 70%, I should say, are in areas that the design assurance professional touches. So, you know, I'm talking about things like, you know, in risk management, for example, the, the links to risk management and labeling. So if you identify risks, are you communicating those risks? Um, the links back to the clinical evaluation report, you know, if there's risks being identified with other types of devices, are you considering them in your risk management file? Things like that. So, I mean, and I'm not saying they're design assurance specific, you know, questions, if you like, but they are, they're, they're touch points that, that the, the DA professional will engage with. So, you know, it, it's a big learning, I think, for a lot of companies who haven't, um, maybe had the best design development processes or, you know, or documentation of them, they're really struggling because, you know, remediation 
is expensive, you know, wow. and it takes time. Yeah. And um, like I say, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of scary in some ways that there's no no additional testing being required, which, you know, means that, you know, thankfully companies are generally doing the right thing and have the right data packs together to demonstrate safety and performance not of their device. But they're not documenting it in the way that the regulators need to see it. And I guess, you know, to me, that's a really important message to get out and to, to just basically understand how your DA professional can engage with that. And if, if you layer on another piece of data in that, I don't know what the specific number is, but do you, and maybe you do, but the specific percentage of tech files that have even been submitted for MDR, it seems like it's pretty low compared to all the products that would need to do that. Yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers actually off the top of my head, but there is a there's a very small percentage gone through that needs to go through, if you like. And over the next two years, I think 2024 has the, you know, by far the greatest percentage of CE certificates under the MDD due to expire. But what's happening mm-hmm. is, and the notified bodies are, you know, telling people, um, get your submissions in now, because one of the piece of information I do have to hand on that small kind of survey that was done, if you like, on, um, it was done on 16 technical files here, is that, you know, the time to clearance, the average review time to clearance, for example, for the class threes is over 500 days here, you know, for class, oh, wow. uh, yeah, and for the class twos, it's coming in roughly in the 350s, 380s, some are going over 400. So that's over a year, that's a year and a half even for your class two devices, like that's almost a year and nine months almost for your um, class threes. So if you have a, a C certificate that's expiring in 2024, you almost need, you know, to be getting your submissions in right now. Yeah. So one of the reasons I brought that up is if this low number are, are what's being submitted right now, and it takes so much response, whether it's 150 to 300, 400 questions answering, mm-hmm. it sounds like we're going to have a, a spike in demand for this design assurance professional, or at least their skill set. And if we don't develop this skill set with our design assurance professionals, that answering those questions is going to fall to the people who are in regulation, the regulators yeah. or the regulatory affairs or your design control uh, engineers, which really would likely be better suited doing what they really do best. And so th- this design assurance, it almost seems like it's going to be a gap. I don't know. Would, would you agree or what? Are your oh, thoughts yeah, there? I think it already is. And, you know, it's the kind of funny because the companies who value it can't get enough of these people. You know, and then the companies that have never heard of them are not looking for them. But there's already a shortage. And, you know, kind of back to, you know, your good uh, question earlier about, like, is there an education pathway? I think it's going to develop. It's going to be like, you know, regulatory is relatively new in the industry, you know, and there's now courses out there. You can do master's in regulatory affairs, you know, the RAPS qualification. So there's, you know, there's courses being developed that didn't exist 30 years ago because really you know, regulatory is is kind of in its infancy in terms of kind of industry. But I think the same will happen with design assurance. You know, at the moment, it's a module or two of kind of, you know, certain programs that so that they know it exists. But I think, you know, again, no more than the PMP uh, qualification that we talked about, you know, the, the project management professional qualification, yeah. you know, you know, that we both are proud to, to, to have. It's it, difficult it to is, get. It is, you know, yeah. so it's nice to have, you know, but, you know, I can, I can see something being developed for design assurance as well, because I think it is, it's, it's kind of, it's out there now. People know about it. 
but as you say, a specific skill set or, or program hasn't been developed around it. Yeah. And I feel like at this point, I should shamelessly plug a friend of mine, Aaron Lucas, is he's building out the academy with for Greenlight Guru. So I don't know oh, if you're sure. familiar with the Greenlight Guru Academy. Definitely mm-hmm. recommend people look out over there. It talks through some of uh, the way you can do certain design controls items and so forth. Sure. So a lot of free yeah. content there that's, that's yeah, valuable. Yeah, great. But Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Orla. I thought this was a very valuable conversation. Um, you, you, I learned some things, which I always am excited to, you know, that's that's one of the reasons I do these podcasts. So um, I enjoyed our conversation. Where can people go to find you to learn more about what you're doing or what you're up sure. to? So, you know, we have a company here. It's called Aztec Medical. So www.aztecmedical.com. Aztec as in, you know, the Aztecs and the Incas. So it's... What's the story behind you know, that, if you don't yeah. mind me asking <laughs> I don't, and I don't even have a good story. But you know, when I oh, <laughs> I, I'm you, sorry. No. When I was in, when I was in um, school, I was about thirteen or fourteen, and we were learning history. And you know, there was a student teacher in actually, and I just, you know, sometimes you just like a teacher, and then you like a subject. But anyway, I like oh, history yeah. anyway. But you know, she was teaching us about kind of, I guess that was like the what even was that? I don't know what kind of, you know, era that is. But anyway, I just loved it. I loved the, the sound of the words, the Aztecs and the Incas and the Aztecs and the Incas. It all seems to be this. So when I was coming up with a name for, yeah. uh, you know, Aztec Medical, I was like, oh, I just like the Aztecs. <laughs> so I better actually maybe, like uh, you know, uh, think about that. But um, yeah, that's that's where it came from. So anyway, we're aztecmedical.com and we we kind of specialize in this area. So we are, you know, regulatory design assurance and clinical affairs and, and quality system management, if you like. So we implement quality systems, um, you know, from scratch for companies as well or, or help them out with their quality systems. So we kind of work in this area because... Um, like I was saying to you earlier, you know, there's a lot of small to medium enterprises who who know know the technical side of it, have the product development engineers, have the ideas, but they don't know how to translate that idea to a commercial reality or to regulatory approval. We, I guess, provide those support services in these areas of like, like I say, quality systems, design assurance, regulatory affairs and clinical affairs. Um, yeah, so that's who we are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Orla. Um, And those of you listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Um, If you're interested in how you can find a software that takes you from beginning to end traceability, check out greenlight.guru. We have the only medtech lifecycle excellence platform uh, on the market. And definitely, definitely check that out. They're the ones who make this podcast possible. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few of the points I took away from this conversation were, number one, the design assurance person is the quality engineer of the R&D process. And two, there may not be a degree in design assurance yet, but this is a teachable subject, especially for the technically minded engineers who can enjoy documentation and technical writing. Granted, that's a special person, but I know they're out there. Third, the design assurance person is the one who packs the parachute. If you were listening, you heard a powerful story that Orla shared. Uh, Those design assurance people are protecting you, the medical device companies, from problems in post-market. If you enjoyed today's episode, please reach out to Orla on LinkedIn and let her know. Uh, Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, Email me etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru or look me up on LinkedIn. 
You can learn all about what we do if you head over to www.greenlight.guru. We're the only MedTech Lifecycle Excellence platform. And on top of that, we've built both a community and an academy where you can go to join the conversation or learn more about the things we discuss on this podcast. You can find those at community.greenlight.guru or academy.greenlight.guru. Next week, we'll be speaking with Karen Deep Badwall on common QMS mistakes software's medical device companies make. Should be good, so definitely stay tuned for that. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It also lets us know how we're doing and uh, helps us uh, figure out how to improve. Thanks again. You guys are great. Take care. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. They lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.